Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. You guys look familiar. Okay, I've seen this before. Um, nothing's changed since last time, last time we talked. Um, I'm still <laughs> I'm still the CG Super Method, so I look after the CG team there. This is still Alan. Yep, it's still Alan. Good. He's, uh, as I said, our lead lighting artist, so he does most of the really heavy lifting in terms of visuals. Um, and we'll be talking about both support for the artistry and the artistry itself, so the amount of work that goes into our characters. As I said, we do sheep, squirrels, robot, teddy bears. We do moose as well, moose, meese, moose, what the plural is, I don't know. <laughs> we do that as well. Um, the way we'll talk about this is I'll give you a bit of background of what we actually do in terms of support structures, in terms of pipeline workflows, to actually enable the artists to do the amount and the quality of work that they do that we do. And then Alan here is going to talk you through a couple of examples of actual projects with concept art, model textures, the whole process from start to finish. Um, I am going to go over some VFX basics, so I thought I'd get a show of hands for whoever's in the room who actually knows this stuff already, so I might skip some of it. Uh, anybody work in VFX? Cool. All right, I might go over those basics pretty quick. Um, I'll use Target as an example. This is a job that we did about six months ago. That was one of the biggest jobs we've done recently, one of the most complex jobs. The title for this is The Greatest Toy Show on Earth, which basically means the concept was to impress the pants of everyone who saw it just by bombarding them with as much stuff as we could possibly build in the five and a half weeks that we had to build it. Um, we ended up with about 40 individual unique original characters that we had to build. Um, throughout the scenes, there's up to 80 characters in the same shot, which is a massive logistical challenge. All of those characters need to be animated, they need to be updated, feedback needs to be incorporated across six or seven shots. Massive job, again, over five and a half weeks. Um, now, typically, going all the way back to how CG production generally works, ideally, in a perfect world, it works as a linear process. So on the example of Target, if we look at the bear, the bear is kind of the hero of the show. He's the star of the commercial. He's what we call a hero asset. We've got several of them in the show, but he's the most complex one. A hero asset is basically a character. Usually assets for us are characters. A hero asset is a character that's got the most amount of detail. In his case, that's because he's front and center. He's always on camera, he loves sticking his face into the camera. You literally see his head full screen. So there's a lot of work that goes into his geometric detail, into the texturing, surfacing, the fur, all those, um, all that stuff. So generally, you start out with a concept, which means you define what you actually want to do, which in itself is a process that takes a bit of time. From there, you go into the modeling, which means you're defining the 3D shape of the object in the computer in virtual space. Um, you can think of it as digital clay. It's basically defining the the um, shape of the object. 
Um, from then on, it goes tool rigging, which is akin to sticking strings onto a marionette. It basically gives the animation team the controls they need to move the character around. So if you want to move the arms, if you want to move the belly, or if you need to give them facial expression, that's where that's all set up. From then it moves into, it moves into surfacing, which is usually Alan's domain, where we define the materials that the characters are made out. So we figure out what materials the eyes are made out of, what material we use for the nose, exactly what does the fur look like. Is he an old character? Is he new? Is the fur shiny? Is it matted? Has it been stained? Has it been stained and washed? Stained and washed over time? Does it have little worn-out patches? Because he is quite an old pre-loved kind of toy. Um, from there, usually it runs into what we call shop production. The first stage is what we call the asset stage. We define and actually ideally finish those characters to a point where you just use them and don't need to worry too much about changing them anymore. From then on, it goes into shop production, which means animation. So if you want the character running from screen right to screen left, you animate at 25 frames a second to create the illusion of motion, um, cinema basics. Um, from then, you go into lighting, which means you point lights at the characters in the computer, which ideally resemble real-world lighting situations. So you use lights that give you realistic results. You figure out what kind of color bounces onto the character to make him fit into the scene. Do we spotlight the bear? Do we remind him to pull out the shape from the background? All those things are built into there. Um, from there, it goes into rendering, which means that you basically throw the asset, the animation, the lighting at a whole bunch of very expensive machines that run a whole bunch of very expensive, um, very complicated programs to figure out what the result would be if you were to actually build the asset in real life, animate it in real life, put the equivalent of those virtual lights onto it in real life, and then look at it through a real camera. Um, final stage is compositing, where all that stuff gets put together and hopefully made to look great. Now, something interesting happens. As I've said, this is the perfect world scenario. This is literally blue sky thinking. It doesn't happen in this way. But this is, by nature, the way it runs the most efficiently. You want to finish one stage before you move on to the next. But something interesting happens when you get feedback, which is the lifeblood of TVC more than anything. We do TV commercials exclusively, and there's a lot of feedback, a lot of revisions, a lot of stakeholders that all want their say and that all contribute to the final product. Now, the thing with feedback is that you very rarely get it exactly where you are going to apply the content of that feedback. With the bear, for example, we went through first animations. We finished the asset. Then we went through first animations. And we looked at him and we thought, we should maybe change the character a bit. We wanted to make him a bit more heavy set. We were going for kind of a Pavarotti sort of vibe. He's a, he's a born showman. He's, born to be on stage. He has been on stage all his life. He loves doing it, but he's not necessarily taking care of himself. Nope. So, cool. If it brings up more of the character, anything to get him away from a generic teddy bear, great. But that in itself, even though that feedback happened in animation, is a modeling change, not an animation change. So you have to go all the way back to modeling, which means that you have to go back all through the stages to get to where you got the feedback initially, then you can show it back to the client and say, here's what we've changed. So you go back into modeling, you make the belly a bit bigger, which then means that you might have to change the rig. So you might add an extra control for the animator so they can make his belly wobble as he walks down the stairs, that sort of thing. Might have knock-on effects for surfacing as well, because if you're going for a bit more of an sort of old school showman character, you might make the fur a bit thinner or a bit more ruffled or put a bit of stains in there 
just to make just to give them a bit more character, just to bring out that particular character just a little bit more. Um, in animation, again, he might move differently if he's heavier. If if he's walking down the stairs, he might take slower steps. He might bounce a bit more. He might look a bit more like it's taking something out of him actually walking down the stairs. Now, if you think about it, you're not actually redoing all of that. Um, if you're changing the model, you're not throwing away the old model and building a new one. You're just reusing what's already there, changing it. Same with the rig, same with the surfacing. You're not throwing away the work that you've already got. You're just adding something to it, or you're removing something from it, or you're changing an existing element. That's the three things that you're going to be doing, one of those three things. Um, same with animation. If it's already moving, no reason to delete that and start from scratch. You just change it a little bit. But that in itself is a lot of work because you do spend a lot of time salvaging what you already have and changing it, which means if you've animated a character that you then change, you want to keep that animation, you want to salvage that animation and really just do the extra bit of work to make that change that you want to make. Um, and that's what we commonly call in-between tasks. They're tasks that sit in between the actual artistic, creative work, in between all the craftsmanship that goes into this. Um, and there's a lot of work in there. Between every stage, there is this sort of maintenance salvaging work going on. And that scales really badly as well. If you've got one character in the scene, you might have a little bit of work. If you've got two characters in the scene, you might have three times the work. As I said, we had 80 characters in a scene. At that point, it was completely unmanageable. So what we did um, was introduce a middleman. This is actually something we've had for a while. And this is one of the reasons why we could how why we could actually pull off this target job. Um, we've introduced something called Asset Repo, which is a central repository for assets. This is not in any way a groundbreaking concept if you work in film, for example. That's quite a common way of doing it. Um, in TVC, it's a bit less common because the deadlines are shorter, the budgets are smaller, you've got to move faster. Usually, you wouldn't put that much effort into managing your assets automatically. Um, now, Compared to the, the usual linear way of doing it, that looks more complicated. I've just told you all these in-between tasks, they take up a lot of work. We've just introduced more of them. And the linear pipeline, at least you can understand, you can look at it and say, okay, we do this, then we do this, then we do this. This one is a bit more back and forth, it's a bit all over the place, and you've got another agent in the middle that makes things more complicated. Now, the advantage of that is that because asset repo controls that area, it can reduce the work. It's basically an automation tool. Um, if, for example, you change the bear, if you make the belly a bit bigger, if you add some animation controls after you've already animated it, you can give that rig um, to asset repo. You would usually give the character directly to the animators. They'll, they'll put them into the file, animate the character. In this case, you give the rig to asset repo. Asset repo will say, okay, what you got there? That's a teddy bear. Cool, I haven't seen that yet, so I'll call that version one. Asset repo stores it on a database um, on a separate server. And then when you go to animate a shot, asset repo will pop up and say, hey, what do you want to animate? How about the teddy bear? I've got version one here, looks nice, I'm on, cool. And you animate that, but asset repo keeps a record of what it's done. So if you make that change to the teddy bear, if you make the belly bigger, if you remove an arm, give him three eyes, it doesn't really matter. And if you roll that through the rig, make those changes there, you don't hand the changed rig to the animator to then see what they can save from the animation, what they can salvage, what they can still reuse. You hand that rig to Asset Repo again. Asset Repo will then 
turn around, talk to the animator and say, hey, you've got the bear version one, but there's a bear version two available. Now asset repos got both of those, so it can compare those and it can look in your working file what the differences are. So it will literally at the click of a button, pull out the bear, the bear version one, replace it with bear version two and try to move everything across that it can salvage. That basically means that in that whole area, the artists don't have to do anything in terms of maintenance, any, anything in terms of salvaging, any, any copy paste, any, anything that's not part of the creative work, anything that's not part of the actual craftsmanship that goes into the asset. And that's, that's the whole point. It's to take that extra work away from the artists so that the, guy, the guys that we do have can spend all their time working on what is actually going to be seen on screen at the end because the asset is what it's all about. That's what goes out the door at the end. That's, by all, that's for all intents and purposes what our success is measured in. And it's really important for us at the volume of work that we do that we don't spend too much time just cleaning the floor all the time or making sure everything's in alphabetical order um, to, to get through the amount of work that we do. And this is how people like Alan here can spend all their time making things beautiful and we still hit our deadline. And this is where Alan takes over and we'll show you some production examples. Um, hi guys, my name is Alan. Um, I'm a lighting lead look, dev look development artist at Method. Um, so my job is mainly dealing with all the hard surface materials like skin, metals and uh, fur. So we're just going to go through a quick ad with an uh, uh, ad we did about four months ago for Huggies. Um, it should be sound, but okay. Yeah, um, yeah, there's no sound. That's okay. So that's that, yeah, real quick ad. So, um, so yeah, the client came to us with, you know, with no actual just a quick brief in words, and they said, yeah, just come up with some ideas for us. So we came up with some really cool concepts, and um, the, uh, the initial plan was they wanted like a, a soft toy that's like a kid's drawing first, and that gets turned into a soft toy, but they wanted like a Barney-sized creature. So, and with all these crazy illustrations that we were doing, <laughs> uh, they, just, they just kept pushing for more and more like hand-drawn kid's drawing sort of stuff. And, and eventually they, they came back with a design for us that they really liked and they decided to stick with the, um, this sort of design. So they said, yeah, let's do this, you know. Um, and then from then on, we started gathering our, some different materials and ideas and how, how to fill the, the creature up. And then moving on to the next thing. So we started with the next low poly modeling, just gathering like the major course details that we need to fill up with all high resolution detail that's coming up next. And so we start putting all the all the all the, the, the all the threads, all the bits that get punched in and the wrinkles and folds. And and as while that's happening, um, I'm working on the uh, the materials and shaders and like plastics, uh, even like the uh, 
cellophane. Uh, you know, even the, f the the actual fur strands are like like plastic tubes. If you zoom real close to them, because um, everything's like you know it's physically accurate. Well, it looks physically accurate. Um, so initial materials they look like this. Um, so yeah, we just basically just try to make sure that all the shaders function correctly. When as soon as you put a light on it, it looks like spot on. Um, the knitting that's the knit thread up close, um, just to see what the actual like because they're you know white thread white wool threads tend to actually have like a silicon. It's like plastic tubes essentially. So we make sure that you know. So when as soon as we shine a light on it, we make sure it actually looks the way we expect it to look. Um, even if it's accurate. Sometimes accurate doesn't really look that nice, so you've got to turn up the volume a bit just to push it a bit more. For example, like even like the eyes, you know, sometimes, because like, the eyes are going to be really far away, and you're going to want to crank that up a bit, just so you can just see a bit of the, you know, scratchy reflections and dirty fingerprints. And um, so we're on to the rigging stage, and, and we quickly put all the uh, basic puppeteering in there that the animators are going to use quite a fair often. And, and the funny thing with the eyes, we have to pull the eyes off because as soon as he turns around, there's nothing there. So he's able to take it off his eyeball and stick it on the other side. And, um, and this is one of the cool things our technical guys have done with the, uh, the wheel. Everything is kind of wonky, just like the kid's drawing. So the animators don't have to actually spend their time hand animating it, making sure it doesn't touch the floor. Like, you know, it's all, you know, it matches perfectly every single time you, you move them around. Um, so yeah, and this is another thing when rigging effects uh, effects with hair and things like that. So we wanted to make sure these things talk to each other while the riggers are working. And um, yeah, so and after all that gets put together, our, our really cool animators make it look awesome. So and uh, got like another ad really next one. It's a moose commercial we worked on. I don't think there's any sound, but is there sound? I don't know. Yeah, so the daughter comes home, you know, she's, you know, from late, blah, 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 and stinks past the dad. The initial plan was the, uh, she was meant to call the moose to come over, you know, like quietly, but he hits a bunch of pots and pans and stuff, but they sort of changed their idea and just thought it would be kind of funny just to have it, like, you know, just awkwardly show up. But, um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Neil's gathered this up with the client and sort of said, like, you know, we're picking and choosing which kind of breed of moose we would actually like to show them because there's so many different types. And, um, but, you know, we kind of wanted it, you know, it sort of lived a slightly difficult life or just, or just very, or just complains a lot and is very grump, grumpy. So we kind of stuck with that sort of feel. And the clients were like, yeah, this is cool, we like this, let's move on. And so then we start gathering as much relevant references as possible and, and um, like details in the eyes and... and uh, different types of fur and textures and things like that. But the important thing for us was to gather the most relevant references um, to what we need to do. Because you, you sort of have to sort of, when you gather your references, I find that um, it's important to gather as much relevant references as possible, not just a, a, a smashed out Tumblr or Pinterest uh, image gathering source because it just becomes a regurgitation of stuff that isn't relevant at all. So, you know, you kind of want to get, get the look and feel of everything as hard as a samurai sword so that when you start working on stuff, you, you know exactly what, you, what you're going to build and, and sculpt. So moving on to the next thing. So, yeah. Um, even, you know, if, 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 you, if you find, like, references are not even part of the animal, um, but you can characterize it, you can borrow those, those same textures and shapes as well. 
and even things we were ignoring, because just because it was just well, just because it was really gross and um, not relevant. But you know, like there's little uh, alien bits on the side of his mouth. Like we didn't put that in. It was just too weird, so we took it out. Um, so yeah, so you know, low poly modeling, uh, lay down the foundation for everything. Make sure all the edge loops are correct, so that when we stick muscles or fat and things like that and, and jiggles, they actually swing the right way. Um, yeah, so moving so after that, we then get into the high res modeling. So again, while we're high res modeling, we got you know really really good references up, and and we just get in there and fill in the details. Um, so coarse details are most important. Um, if you guys are learning modeling, um, you know just uh, fill in coarse details. It's probably the hardest part for most artists because we always fall in love with details straight away. So yeah, fill in the course details first, and then details come for free. Like details become really easy as soon as you fill in the broad brushstrokes. So yeah, so and yeah, you will see me just like sculpting away, like you know, using fat brushes, just you know, just big chunky areas first, and then as soon as you start getting to those little big fat areas, you start getting the tiny areas, and they just come for free. Like you know, details get really easy after that. So. Um, there's some antler details that I made earlier. And um, and this is me being silly, just <laughs> as big as I can. So, and you know, again, hair. I, hair's really hard. Um, I wish I could talk more about it. Um, but initially, we started with like bas the basics of hair is just, you know, you start with a straight up hair groom. And then you cluster it, like when you put wax in your hair and you pinch it and twist it. And then you've got your kinks and your frizz. And then you chuck on some straight hairs. And um, yeah, so we're able to like, you know, brush, stroke, groom um, all our creatures the way exactly the way we want it. You know, even like the percentile of like individual gray hairs that show up like every, you know, every 10% of this body, it's like a gray hair that would pop up and you'll choose a different material. So, and again, while we're working, um, you know, we've got all the riggers, all the model, you know, we've got modeling happening all at the same time, but we're not seeing anything move. So. This is one of the early tests that we just smashed out, and you know, just to check what what, what things are working, what's not working, and it's a good, yeah, it's important not to be shy. Okay, all right, you know, show show your mistakes. It's good, like you know, and um, again, initial first test, we're just smashing it together to see if it, we're on the right track, and if it doesn't work, we just go back in the the production development and just keep fixing whatever it's wrong, and then once we get the models right, we then you know. And then we move on to the hair, and that's the final thing. And uh, and again, our look development for all the close-up shots that we had to deal with. Um, the clients initially wanted to actually have like him do that awkward Arnold Schwarzenegger smile um, when he's learning to smile with Edward Furlong. Yeah, but they just did not like they changed their mind, so they didn't put it in. But you know, it looks cool. Right? And um, so yeah, that's the end of the, of the presentation. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.